We're in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 through 11. If you'd like a title for today's message, Our Prowling Adversary. Our Prowling Adversary. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 through 11. Peter writes to the churches throughout Asia Minor. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. Our God and Father, may you bless the reading and the preaching of your holy word this morning. Amen. In Louisville, where I used to live in Kentucky when I was there for a year studying at the Pastors College, there's a great zoo. And I used to go there often because it was nearby. And one of their great exhibits was the lion exhibit. And it was sort of set up a little bit like Lion King with a bit of a pride rock scenario. But the cool thing about it was is that the pride rock cave situation was at eye level of the spectators with just a, a gulf in between the two of you. And so at certain points during the day, the lion or the lioness would come up onto the rock, all four paws down and just roar with all of its might. And you'd be standing there at eye level and it'd be roaring and you're just like, oh. Even if you were down 100, 250 metres away at the elephants, you could hear the roar and everyone just stops. When Peter wrote this letter to the Christians in Asia Minor, just a couple of verses beforehand, he called the church the flock of God. You've got to picture Palestinian farming where there's one shepherd on a mountainous hillside in the dark and there's wild cats about, lions and wolves you can imagine a shepherd with his little flock on this dark hillside in the night when he starts to hear, he starts to hear the soft padding of some kind of creature. He's got his torch going and he's trying to ward off the lion and then just to flex its presence, it roars. The sheep are fearful. The shepherd has to do all he can to keep them in place. And the lion roars, seeking someone to devour. He roars to threaten the flock. He roars to let them know he's there and he's coming and he will get you. That's the type of image that Peter is conjuring up for us in this passage for us as Christians. And the only appropriate response for a shepherd in that time would be to be on guard. 
to be vigilant, to not let sleep come upon him, to not let any sheep start to wander off. No, night and day, that shepherd would need to be on guard, be vigilant. It would be tiring. It would be exhausting. There'd be moments when you'd want to give up. But if he wanted to protect his sheep, he'd have to be on guard. And indeed, that is Peter's intention for us this morning. However peaceful and beautiful and and calm our lives may seem at various points, Peter wants us to be not mistaken. There is an enemy about. He is a vicious, roaring lion with power to devour. And his call upon our lives is to be vigilant, is to be alert, is to be awake, to be on guard. Be on guard for ourselves, for our families, for our loved ones, for our church. If you come to my house, you'll see on the gates, there's a little sign which used to say, beware of the dog. Then someone crossed it out and it now says cat. <laughs> beware of the cat. And it's, you know, it's a joke. But when we come to this passage, this passage is no joke. We're not dealing with a cat in the ordinary domestic sense. We are dealing with a powerful spiritual being that has been in active opposition against God, in active opposition against God's people for millennia. Most of us often fall into two camps that C.S. Lewis has famously distinguished. He said this, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, the devils, are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. Peter wants us to avoid both of those ditches, practically not believing in Satan and that he's actively against us, or being so consumed with the awareness of Satan that we think he's everywhere and doing everything and that we have no power and that we're going to be overrun at any moment. No, no, no. This passage is carefully balanced and very helpful. And so today, in order to avoid those two ditches, we're going to look at three points from this passage that will help us to do what Peter has called us to do. That we would be on guard against our adversary. Point number one. Point number one is this. Watchfulness is required. Watchfulness is required. Read verse eight with me again. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Peter gives us two commands here. Firstly, to be sober-minded. We've already heard this twice in the letter. Chapter 1, verse 13. Chapter 4, verse 7. It means be alert, be level-headed, be aware. Don't be so consumed in your life or your entertainments, your pleasures, your drunkenness, whatever it is, that you're in a stupor, that you are not sharp and alert. I was at a wedding last night. I can tell you, not everyone was sober-minded at the wedding. And you can see the people that aren't. And they could, you could lead them anywhere. You could do whatever you like with them. And the people that were were still able to have a good time, but they know what they're doing. 
Peter says, be sober-minded. Secondly, be watchful. This conjures up the image of the, the guards at a city wall, the sentries who are set on the wall and they must abstain from sleep for the sake of their people. Their job is through the watches of the night to stand guard, to be alert, to be listening, to be looking, to be paying attention, to be vigilant, to deprive themselves of comfort, to deprive themselves of sleep so that they can be on guard. It's intense and consuming. But these two commands to you and I, these are not just to leaders, this is to the whole church, be sober-minded, be watchful, is for the reason, verse 8, because your adversary, your enemy, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. We must be on guard. Why? Because we have an enemy. If you are in Christ, you have an enemy. This is not like the movies. This is not some, you know, fictitious idea. This is not just a literary device. You actually have a supernatural being who hates you and is going after you. He hates you. He hates me. He hates us. He hates this church. And he has a kill plan. And our names are on it. You are on it. Your family's on it. Our church is on it. And Peter knows this because remember what Christ said to Peter on the night that Peter betrayed Christ. Luke chapter 22, verse 31. He calls him by his first name, Simon. Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. Particular, specific, targeted. Satan demanded Peter and he got him. He sifted Peter like wheat. Peter was gone, denied Christ three times. Now it goes on in verse 32 to speak of how Jesus prayed for Peter and that ultimately Peter was not lost, but nonetheless, Satan has a plan against God's people. And what's this enemy like? Know your enemy is one of the first rules of war. Well, we're told in this passage that he's called the devil. That's the most common name for Satan in the scriptures, used over 30 times. The word the devil means the accuser, the slanderer. It's taken from the Greek word, the Satan or the Satan, into the Greek diablos. It means accuser or slanderer. It means he likes to bring up our sins against us and actively make us feel condemned and guilty. Jesus called him a murderer from the beginning, and the father of all lies, John 8, 44. He also called him the evil one in Matt 6, 13. In Revelation, he's called Apollyon. In Greek, that is the destroyer. In Ephesians, he's described as the prince of the power of the air. And in 2 Corinthians, the God of this age. What do all these names represent? He is a being of malevolent and cunning, evil and power whose food 
is to devour and destroy. It's no joke. Hence why Peter describes him as a prowling lion, roaring and seeking someone to devour. Lions figure over 140 times in the Scriptures. And here's one description of a lion in Numbers 23, 24, speaking of a people. Behold, a people, as a lioness, it rises up and as a lion, it lifts itself. It does not lie down until it has devoured the prey and drunk the blood of the slain. That's what lions were created to do. They are killing machines. And although there is much we could say about Satan's strategies in taking us down and attempting to destroy God's people, the church, it's clear that in particular, this lion seeks to devour believers through the means of persecution. That's the context of this passage. In chapter 4, verse 12 to 19, we saw that all those who live a godly life and seek to represent Christ will suffer for the name of Christ. In verses 9, he talked about our suffering throughout the world. And so it's clear that the roaring and the devouring that Satan will try and do is often, though not exclusively, through the means of persecution. Scholar Tom Schreiner says this, The devil roars like a lion, to induce fear in the people of God. In other words, persecution is the roar by which he tries to intimidate believers in the hope that they will capitulate at the prospect of suffering. If believers deny their faith, then the devil has devoured them, bringing them back into his fold. You see in John Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress when Christian meets Apollyon and that's exactly what the, the devil character wants to do. He says, you have strayed from me. You're following this God. I want to bring you back into my fold. Come in and tries to threaten him and scare him. And Satan is doing the same thing. He's trying to make us quaver, capitulate. He wants to isolate us so that he may pick us off and devour us. But what does this look like practically for us in Parramatta? It's often not physical violence or suffering that is roaring at us. We may think, well, I guess we're fairly safe. Not much persecution happening here. No roaring in Parramatta. We would be fools to think that. The devil is roaring at us through so many different channels and we need to be attuned to them often more subtle though. He roars through TV shows and news programs, legislative policy, company codes of conduct. He's roaring to you and I, if you stand up, I will get you. If you speak up, I will take you down. Sit down, be quiet or else. I think that's the way Satan roars at us here in Parramatta be quiet or I will make your life hell. You stand for Christ, I'm taking you down. That's, I think, the way Satan roars. And so although we may not be experiencing physical suffering and violence for the sake of Christ, perhaps like some of these believers were, Satan is roaring and wants us to be silent. 
And at times, even the slightest snarl or purr from this lion can cause us to shut up, to cause us to back down, to cause us to be silent, to not speak up for the name of Christ. How are you going in standing for Jesus and your friends and your family and your neighborhood? How are you going in those moments when the faith is on the line, the morals are on the line? Do you feel that roar? It's silent but deafening, is it not? If I say something, if I do something, I don't know what's going to happen. Does not the thought of any negative criticism paralyze you into silence and inaction? Does not the possibility of loss of respect, loss of job, awkwardness with friends and family, maybe even physical threat, cause you to back down? It does for me. Unless we think that severe consequences are never in Never Neverland, there are laws being passed around our country which, if enforced, will make it impossible to faithfully parent without being criminally prosecuted in certain circumstances. In Victoria, they passed the Change or Suppression Practices Prohibition Act in 2021. This act is described on the Victorian government's website like this. Everyone has the right to be treated equally and without discrimination. Practices that seek to change or hide someone's sexual orientation or gender identity are harmful and unlawful. This act bans these changes or practices and provides a range of options for preventing and responding to them. The question on the FAQ there is, what are change or suppression practices, you might ask? Okay, listen. Practices can include teachings, counsellings, spiritual care activities, or other psychological or medical interventions based on the ideology that there is something wrong or broken about people with diverse sexualities or gender identities. Then it says in bold, there is nothing wrong or broken about being LGBT. IQ. Now, if you're a pastor or a friend or a parent and someone in Victoria comes to you, and this is in ACT now and in Queensland, and wants to change their sexual identity from being homosexual to straight or wants to change their gender identity because they they realize that this isn't all that it's cracked up to be and, and the brokenness they were hurting that they were trying to solve wasn't solved by these manners and you seek to help them out of that, and then they turn on you and report you to the police, well, the consequences are up to $10,000 in a fine or 10 years in prison. What is the criminal convictions? Well, physical injury is one of them, if you cause physical injury, or the nebulous, character, um, the nebulous category, harm to mental health, temporary or permanent. So, I bring this up to say that there are possibilities before us where we will actually have to make a genuine decision that if, this, if the chips don't play out as I hope in this counselling conversation with a friend or a child or someone, and I stand for what the Bible teaches is loving to tell people that there is hope in Christ and that to live God's way is actually the best way to live, that there is something broken about homosexual relationships and gender identities out of sort with creational realities. If you preach that and tell that to someone, you must be prepared that you may be criminally convicted. It's unlikely to happen in the next couple of years, but it may. 
and it's possible and it's in law. And even if you do it in New South Wales to a Victorian, you can be prosecuted. I bring up this example. This is Satan roaring, saying to the church, saying to Christian parents, don't you dare, I will get you. So Peter wants us to be sober-minded. We're not living in la-la land. We're living in a spiritual war. He wants us to be watchful. That means constantly on the lookout. Peter learned his lesson. He was not watchful. Jesus told him to watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation on the night that he betrayed Christ. And what did Peter do? He slept. And now, after being restored by Christ, he implores his churches, don't do what I did. I was suckered in. I was sifted like wheat. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Someone. Someone perhaps in this room. Satan may be going after through his devils this very day. So friends, are you awake? Are you sober? Are you aware that even though the sun might shine and the latte might be sweet and I might have been at a wedding last night feasting and enjoying and celebrating that we're always in wartime, no days off. And it doesn't mean we have to walk around angry and militant and like, let's crash down these laws and Satan's here and there. No, sober-minded, watchful. Even at the wedding last night, I was, I was watching some relational conflict between these people that I love and I was just aware oh Satan you could get in here you could divide this right now and destroy a marriage and I was praying for them interceding for them and so I was feasting and praying and and, and that's our call this jewel now and not yet we feast and we pray we feast and we watch and, and it works together somehow so firstly how do we go about living in this, uh, this contested time in the now and the not yet. Well, Peter says, watchfulness is required. So friends, be watchful. But it's not all doom and gloom, quite the opposite. Point number two, resistance is not futile. Resistance is not futile. So watchfulness is required, but good news, point two, resistance is not Futile. I am not a Star Trek fan, but I, I, I thought I, that word resistance is futile, that phrase, that is in something. So I Googled it. Turns out it's the Borg in Star Trek. If you know Star Trek, and the Borg are the alien invaders and they hate people and they go around saying this We are the Borg. Lower your shields, surrender your ships. We will add your biological and technological distinctiveness to our own. Your culture will adapt to service us. Resistance is. Futile. The point being is that they want to just take over with no war. But that's the exact opposite of what Peter calls us to in verse 9. This is what God wants us to do. Verse 9, resist him. Resist him. 
the devil, the adversary, the, the prowling, roaring lion. You're a sheep, but God calls you to resist him. How? Firm in your faith. Why? Knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Though Satan prowls and roars and seeks to devour, we can actually meet this adversary with confidence and faith and we can stand against him. We can resist him. What does resistance mean? Well, it it doesn't mean we need to do exorcism. It doesn't mean we need to do special anointings or things like that. um, What it means is, is exactly what Peter says there. Firm in your faith. Remain firm in Christ. The way you resist Satan is you say, I'm with Jesus, back off. I believe in Christ. You have no hold over me. I will not back down. I will not change my belief. I will not capitulate. I will not walk into this sin. That's how you resist Satan. You don't need holy crosses. You don't need garlic. You don't need anything. You need Jesus and you put your faith in him. And I think we can do this in a sort of confident, not cocky, but confident, happy resistance. In 1944 in France, during the French resistance against the Nazi occupation, there was a man called Georges Blind. I looked up how to pronounce it because it was spelt Georges. I'm like, it's probably not Georges. So Georges, the S is silent. <laughs> and Georges Blind was a firefighter. And he joined the voluntary resistance movement against Nazism in France. And because he was a firefighter, he was able to go out at night and kind of like do a lot of things and supply weapons and intel and things like that. But eventually he got caught. And when he got caught, in order to threaten him, to get him to speak up, they staged what he didn't know was a mock execution. And do we have the photo? Sweet. So we got there is, I don't know how well you can see, but you got 20 soldiers lined up. He's against a brick wall on the corner. And if you zoom in, you probably can't do it. He has a smile on his face. One of the Nazi soldiers turned in this film, and as the French person was developing it, he noticed this photo and thought, what is this? Who is this guy that would smile looking down the barrel of 20 Nazi rifles? He was happy in his resistance. He knew he was never going to speak up. He knew he was never going to tell the secrets or give in. And so his memory lives on, even though he sadly died later on in a concentration camp in the war. But that's an image of how we can meet Satan. Confident, strong, knowing that even if he inflicts the worst against us, I'm not giving in. I'm not backing down. I'm not changing my faith. I'm not changing my beliefs. I'm not changing my moral convictions. Instead, smile and resist. Paul said this similarly in the letter to the Ephesians. He said, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. What are we meant to do? Are we meant to go out and tear down things? No, no, no. Spiritually, we stand. And Satan cannot beat our faith because our faith is not us, it's in Christ. And so we stand firm in our faith and we meet him head on. The Apostle James, he said this, 
Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now that gives us confidence in the fight. So we ought not to be cowering. This, this verse doesn't say, oh, be really afraid. Satan's going to get you in any moment and you're helpless. No, no, no. This verse says, resist the devil and he will flee. He will run. Why? Because we are firm in our faith. Tom Shriner says, the roaring of the devil is, a, is the crazed anger of a defeated enemy. And if they do not fear his ferocious bark, they will never be consumed by his bite. Satan wants you to capitulate. He wants to destroy your faith. Why? Because faith is the weapon we have to fight him off. That's why he sows seeds of doubt. That's why he wants us to doubt the goodness of God or the presence of God in the midst of our sufferings. That's why he roars through suffering and brings persecution on believers because suffering seems to have such a pronounced effect on making us doubt the presence and goodness of God. So he brings suffering, he brings pain because he wants you to turn your back on Christ. And we mustn't delude ourselves in thinking that we will have the strength to not give in. It's going to be hard. If, if Satan really came against us, we must be constantly watchful and sober-minded so that we will not give in. I'm going to share a story which is somewhat negative and positive. It's taken from the book, Jesus Freaks, um, which is a story from, stories from Voice of the Martyrs. This is a story about a young girl in a communist country somewhere in Asia in the 70s. The communist soldiers had discovered their illegal Bible study. As the pastor was reading from the Bible, men with guns suddenly broke into the home, terrorizing the believers who had gathered there to worship. The communists shouted insults and threatened to kill the Christians. The leading officer pointed his gun at the pastor's head. Hand me your Bible, he demanded. Reluctantly, the pastor handed over his Bible, his prized possession. With a sneer on his face, the guard threw the word of God on the floor at his feet. He glared at the small congregation. We will let you go, he growled. But first, you must spit on this book of lies. Anyone who refuses will be shot. The believers had no choice but to obey the officer's order. A soldier pointed his gun at one of the men. You first. The man slowly got up and knelt down by the Bible. Reluctantly, he spit on it, praying, Father, please forgive me. He stood up and walked to the door. The soldier stood back and allowed him to leave. Okay, you, the soldier said, nudging a woman forward. In tears, she could barely do what the soldier demanded. She spat only a little but it was enough. She too was allowed to leave. Quietly, a young girl came forward, overcome with love for her Lord. She knelt down and picked up the Bible. She wiped off the spit with her dress. What have they done to your word? Please forgive them, she prayed. The communist soldier put his pistol to her head. Then he pulled the trigger. I share this harrowing story for two reasons. I want us to see how hard it would be in the face of actual 
physical suffering and violence to actually stand up and how easy it would be to capitulate. A little dribble of spit and you save your life. A little compromise in our time on sexuality. You keep your job. And the second reason is I want to motivate us to be like that brave girl, knowing if a child like that can suffer for Jesus and resist Satan, so too can we. And that's exactly how Peter wants to motivate these believers in their resistance in Satan. That's why he goes on in verse 9 and says, Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing what? That the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Little girls like that girl have stood up and they shine brightly. And Peter wants the Christians to know you're not alone. You're not suffering on your own here. This isn't unexpected. This is normal. Everyone who desires to live a godly life will be persecuted. And so he calls on the Christians and us to join the resistance movement. And oh, how many saints have gone before us to their graves in triumphant resistance. Throats slit, bodies burned, bullet holes in their brains, but firm in their faith. And even though they lost their life, they gained an eternal one. Resistance is not futile. You may lose your life, but you don't have to lose your faith. And so resist him and stand firm in your faith. But how do we make it through? I know me, I like to boast and think, yeah, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't spit on that Bible. I'd be one of the strong ones. I'd be like that girl. What's the only way we can have the power to be like that? It doesn't come naturally. It's not from within us. Point number three. So point one was watchfulness. Point two, resistance. Point three, expectation. Expectation fuels endurance. And that's exactly where Peter goes in verse 10 and 11. In verse 10 and 11, he says, And after you have suffered a little while, The God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. He wants to redirect them now, not unto themselves, but back to God, the source of their strength. Where do we get endurance from? It comes from our expectation that God will meet us here and has prepared for us an eternal place of glory. Here, he's not minimizing their suffering, but relativizing it, helping them see that it is a little while in comparison to the eternal glory that awaits them if they remain in Christ. And so friends, may I commend to you, have a healthy expectation of your eternal glory that was purchased for you on the hill of Calvary. Have heaven firmly fixed in your mind and that will strengthen you with the endurance to last through any persecution, any trial that comes your way. And not only that, not only is the best yet to come, so don't capitulate now, the best is yet to come. Look at what he says about what God will do for us. 
The God of all grace, what an apt title compared to Satan, the roaring lion seeking to devour. The God of all grace will himself personally restore, confirm, strengthen and establish you. He will do it. He, Peter uses those four verbs there to describe what God will do to you, to inform us that the power to resist doesn't come from within, comes from without. It comes from God to us. And this is the confident expectation we take into our exilic battle. As sin wages war, as governments may oppose, as slave masters may treat us badly in their circumstance, as husbands abuse their authority and Satan takes us to task, the great line of Judah stands behind us, casting his shadow over the little lion, Satan. And that's why Satan flees. Because behind us is the lion of Judah who has conquered the evil one. The Apostle Paul said this of what Christ did on the cross in Colossians 2, 13 to 15. This is why Satan will flee. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Remember, Satan's the accuser. He wants to accuse you to God and say, this person can't go to heaven. And God says, no, I've cancelled the debt. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Verse 15, and by so doing, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. <laughs> That's how we have confidence to meet this angelic being who hates you and I, because the Lion of Judah set aside all of our sins on the cross and therefore Satan has nothing against us ultimately. He cannot accuse, he cannot slander because it's been cancelled. And therefore, when the great lion stands behind you, the one who shared his blood before you, the little lion will flee. And so put all your hope and expectation in him, not in yourself. Look to the great lion. He will restore, confirm and strengthen you. He will bolster your faith to stand during the difficult times of persecution that may come. Expectancy fuels endurance. So friends, when you lock eyes with that lion and it roars, makes you tremble and quake, Peter would say to you, be watchful, be aware, be sober-minded. You must constantly be on guard, church. He'd also say resistance is not futile. You resist him, stand firm in your faith, never back down and he will flee. And he would say expectation of future glory and present grace, that will fuel your endurance to make it through the suffering now. And then in verse 11, he ends with a climactic declaration of the great line of Judah's power. Verse 11, to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. 
To him, the Lion of Judah, the Lamb that was slain. To him, the God eternal, Yahweh, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, be dominion. He is the one that rules. He is the one that reigns and Satan is on his leash. And so therefore, put all your hope in him and never turn aside to the little lion who seeks only to devour you when the great lion was devoured so that you can have eternal glory in Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray and ask that you would strengthen and confirm and establish us as a church. Lord, I pray and ask that in whatever ways that Satan may try and devour us, that we would look to you and be strengthened in our faith. Help us to resist. Help us, O Lord, to stand firm and help us to be constantly watchful and sober-minded. Lord, I pray that as a church, we would be watchful and sober-minded for one another, knowing that at times we're we're going to be drowsy, knowing at times that we're going to let down our guard. But Lord, may as a church, we stand with one another and for one another, interceding and strengthening. And Lord, if there's anyone here today that has been blinded by the little lion and is lost in their sins, Lord, I pray and ask that you would forgive them of their sins and lead them back to you out of the clutches of Satan and into the everlasting and gentle arms of the great lion of Judah. Convict them of their sin now, O Lord, and lead them to you. And so, Lord, please help us to have faith. We need you. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.